0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It is good to be with you this morning and to look together at the Word of God with you We'll be looking at Christmas and the passage affiliated with it. We're going to look at Christ from, from Matthew 25. Okay, Marcus told me that we've been in Matthew the whole time, that he's been in our church. I'm sure there are kids who've grown up in our church and we've been in, you know, you've gone from infancy to young adulthood and we've been in Matthew that whole time. And we're going to remain in Matthew this morning because I want to get done before I'm done, all right? So, will you stand with me as we look together at God's Word, Matthew 25, 14 through 30? Now, Jesus says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. But remember that he's been speaking about the kingdom of heaven all through this journey. This sermon that he preaches in private to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. He's speaking to them about the kingdom of heaven, about the, the kingdom of, of God on earth. And uh, just the, the previous parable began with, then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins. And then when he says, for it is just like, he's referring again to the kingdom of heaven. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came And settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you handed five talents over to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master... You handed two talents over to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received the the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Therefore, you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Will you raise your hands with me as we pray for God to illuminate his word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning that it will not be the words of men, but they may be the words of your word, Father, mediated through a man, but with your Holy Spirit working to bring power and conviction from them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. It's a parable about a master and his slaves. And it teaches something about the life of the Christian, that we are slaves serving a master. We are we are bought, we are owned, and yet by the end we enter into the joy of the master. And so there's no higher calling and no greater privilege than to be a slave of Christ, to be a slave, to serve him, to love him. And his slaves are entered into joy, into his joy. They receive his joy, they receive blessings, they receive rewards, they They're in charge of many things. Some of you are going to be in charge of many things in heaven. You're a slave who's done well, and God is going to say, come into my joy, I'm gonna give over many things to you. You know that the the saints, the Bible tells us, will rule in heaven, we'll judge the angels, we'll do so many things, and you will have charge over many things. It's a happy thought, but it's a thought that comes to us in the midst of a warning. This, this parable is also in the midst of its rewards. It's, it's ultimately a story of judgment. A story of failure. And it illuminates the kingdom of heaven as it exists in glory beyond this world when it's reconstituted in perfection in the presence of Christ and becomes the true kingdom of heaven that will exist without stain or blemish for all time. This is a parable of the kingdom of heaven on earth but it is a parable that also speaks of that kingdom as it reaches eternity. And what this parable reveals as the preceding parable revealed and as the following text reveals the final part of this sermon taught by Christ reveals is that the borders of the kingdom of heaven in glory, when it's reconstituted in purity and perfection in the presence of God, are smaller than the borders of the kingdom of heaven as it exists on earth. That on earth, the kingdom of heaven is not a pure assembly, perfectly constituted, all of the citizens of that kingdom being absolutely devoted to Christ, faithful slaves, but there are unfaithful slaves. There are those in in the wider borders of this kingdom as it exists in the form of the church on earth. There are members who are not truly members in heaven, that is... Uh, it's undeniable as we look at these, these passages that this is what Jesus is teaching. The borders of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the border of the kingdom of heaven in heaven in glory are not the same. They have, they have a different outline. And the kingdom of heaven in heaven is smaller than the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, it doesn't exist without, it's only inside, inside, only within, but it is a portion of the kingdom that's on earth that will be found to be true in heaven. In other words, there's no one who comes from outside in. That's not even in view. Nothing, no hope, nothing in scripture makes us think that those who are outside the kingdom of heaven on earth will enter the kingdom of heaven in heaven And yet not all who are part of this kingdom on earth will enter and enjoy the rest or the joy of their master in heaven. Many of us assume that these two kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven in heaven, are the same. They think they're, use a big word, coterminous. They have... Same beginning, and same end, that they go down the same path. They are not. They don't have the same rosters. They don't have the same citizens. And this is sobering. Because Jesus makes clear that the roster, the roles of heaven, the citizenship roles of heaven, include many apparent citizens of heaven on earth, Many who were included in the roster of his earthly kingdom, but not all. There will be found to be members of the kingdom of heaven in eternity. A smaller group, a subset of the earthly kingdom. And that means that there will be excluded from the borders of that kingdom when it's constituted in its perfection. When it comes into being in its perfect form, there will be members of the kingdom of heaven on earth will be excluded. They will have taught Sunday school, but they're excluded. They will have been preachers of God's word, but they will find themselves excluded. There will be nursery workers. There will be people who have, who have called themselves Christians all their lives, but they will find... Jesus says, you can't, you can't deny it, folks. I mean, it's just, it's just so clear in the Bible. They're, they will find in heaven that they're excluded. They'll be offended and insulted. They'll say, what, what, what? That's simply what the Bible teaches. And I want to ask you what's your reaction to this? The idea that you could have been in the church, working, teaching, serving, and yet rejected by Christ in heaven. What's your reaction? Do you hear this and go, ugh? Do you find yourself going, I don't like that? Is there a, a hint somewhere in your head, even though you know it's not supposed to be stated or even thought, that, man, that's unfair? You know, the fact, the, the possibility, the fact that the possibility exists that I could be going, 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 and at the end of the race have Jesus say, ah, oh, you failed, does that strike you as something that is perhaps more an indictment of God than of you? I think many of us may feel that way. I know that in heaven many will feel that way. They'll say, when did we not do these things for you? When? How did we fail you? And they'll say, I never knew you. And so if it's true in heaven that the, in the actual fact of the thing... that that there are going to be many who are going to say, this is not fair. Uh, My suspicion is that here on Earth, as we consider this possibility, this potential future for you and me, that we may look at it even in potential, as a possibility rather than actualize it, rather than brought about, And say, I don't like that. That's not good. That's not right. If we're willing to say it to Christ in heaven, we certainly are willing to think it here on earth unfair. Hold in mind your reaction to this. Hold in mind your reaction. Because your reaction, as we're going to see in this passage, is your destiny. Hold on to that initial reaction as we make our way through this passage. Hold on to that thought. What is your reaction to this reality that's made absolutely clear by this this parable? That many of those within the church who served, who are known as Christians here on earth, will be excluded from heaven, cast into outer darkness. Do you find your hackles rising? Even just a little bit. Are you just a little bit angry? Does it strike you as unfair, as though God could be a cavalier God, acting, just going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, by fiat, rather than sensible, fair, logical. Is it unreasonable? You see it as unjust. I want to return to this question at the end of our time. So, as we look at our passage, it's clear that the, the story is a story Ultimately of of failure because the parable isn't really about the first two, though it is about them. The parable is really setting up the third guy with the first two. The first two are there, they're the fall guys for the third guy. They illuminate the third guy. And what is clear in this parable is that the basis of judgment in eternity applied by Christ, by God the Father... To those of you who claim Jesus' name and say, I am a member of that kingdom here on earth, who claim a relationship to Christ here on earth, the the basis of judgment in eternity will be your fruits. This is unescapable. It's so clear. I really wish I didn't have to argue it, but it is absolutely clear. And if you've read... The book of Revelation, as I've been doing in the last two weeks, over and over and over, the statement is your deeds are not complete. Your deeds, your deeds, your deeds, which are your fruit. In heaven, God is going to be looking from, for fruit from your life. That fruit can exist along a great continuum from the fruit of your body, which is essential to the fruit of your spirit, bearing children physically, bearing children with your faith. But God and everything that exists in between are works of love. The fruit that God requires is love, that we love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the evidence that we are born again. I hope you aren't going to your Reformed theology, sermons you once heard, or podcasts, or even Calvin's Institutes, to avoid this obvious truth. Calvin understands this and says it. I was going to quote him, but I'm not going to bother. You can look it up if you don't believe me. Don't turn to some sophisticated preacher who's told you you really don't need to worry about what you do. Whether it's sin or righteousness. Don't listen to those guys. Nothing could be clearer from Scripture, from the parables Jesus tells, especially these right here. But it's all through Scripture that judgment is in accord with fruit. Entry into heaven is granted those and only those who bear fruit in this world. Now, don't think that bearing fruit, that deeds of mercy, goodness, witness, charity make you merit heaven, make you deserving of eternal life. They don't. No one is righteous. The Bible is very clear. None. Your works of charity, your works of mercy do not change the essential nature of your character. Even doing all your good deeds, you're a sinner before God and you don't sop up the stains of sin in your life on the plate of your life like you would with a, a piece of bread, the gravy on your, your Thanksgiving dinner. You don't sop up the stains of your sin with your good deeds. It doesn't work that way. Still, judgment is in accord with your works. And this is a truth that the Bible repeats over and over again. Your works are so tied to God's calling that he says, make sure of your election. Make it sure by how you behave, by doing good deeds, that you work elect for good works. And in heaven, your works will be the basis of God's judgment on you. Whether you enter his presence forever or cast into the outer darkness, God will point to your works and say, ah, fruit, you've borne fruit, come in. You have loved me. You have been born of the Spirit and are into the joy of your master. Now, the reason that this has to be said is that you do not and you cannot know the inner counsels of the Godhead, of the Trinity. You can't know whether the Father and the Son said, let's write this name in the, in the annals of heaven, in the, the Lamb's book of life in heaven. You don't know that. It's not open to you. It's only opened in heaven in eternity. That book is a mystery to you. It's known to God and to him alone whether you are elect and in that book or not whether you're chosen whether your name is there in the lamb's book of life which defines the citizenship role of heaven that book is not in any earthly library you can open it's shrouded this mystery is shrouded in the in the being of god you can't look into it it's not open to you what is open to you what you can know what god calls you to know and to judge in yourself is whether your life is fruitful You both know and can judge whether your life is filled with the fruit of love. So, Jesus calls you here in our passage and throughout this sermon to bear fruit, to be filled with the works of love that bring him pleasure in eternity, and to serve on earth as proof of your heavenly citizenship, to serve with faithfulness and love in a way that makes clear that you're a citizen of heaven. Love expressed in action, love that bears fruit is the proof of your election that you have been chosen by God. And in this lies the failure of the third slave. The third slave bears no fruit. Now, it's clear this man has the beginnings of of salvation. Not the end product, but he has something there. An initial form of things. It's clear that he has a form of hope. He thinks maybe he might please the master by returning the talent undisturbed. He's like the five unwise virgins of the previous parable who set out for the wedding banquet. He sets out to serve his master. He has a form of faith. He acts on his hope. Hope is looking and seeing something and wanting. Faith Well, faith is the assurance of the substance of things hoped for. By faith, we grab for what is unseen, what what is beyond us. And by faith, we, we take the power of God that we see in our hope. Our hope sees God. Our faith reaches to God. And when we touch God by faith, we have power to love. And the good deeds flow from it. These three things are consistently spoken of together in the bible now in the roman catholic church there was a focus at the time of the reformation only on love works of charity do works of charity and of course those works of charity primarily consisted of giving money to the church do works of charity and you're a child of god the protestant church said believe and you're a child of god believe believe and if you get around to the works of charity and if you do That's good, and you must at some point, but no linkage. The Bible begins with hope. The Bible always begins with hope. And what we don't have in either the Protestantism of our day or in the Roman Catholicism of our day in the past is an understanding that God must be hoped in. Hope is looking to something and expecting good. Hope is looking with anticipation hope is the longing of your heart it is something welling up in you and saying ah 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 there's something else here rather than what I'm currently experiencing hope this 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 third man this third slave bears no fruit In the realm of fruit, in the realm of loving actions that should flow from hope and faith, this man is barren. He adds nothing by his faith to what he has received. So obviously he's fruitless. He doesn't have love. Okay? The fruit, remember, is is love. It's the works of love. He doesn't have love, but we've got to recognize that if he doesn't have love, then then he really doesn't have faith either, because faith can't help but bring about great deeds of love. So this man has added nothing by faith to what he received. He received a treasure, and he has wasted his initial faith, because he hid the treasure in the ground rather than adding to it. Now he is just like a a parabolic figure in the Old Testament, a guy whose life is a parable, and that's Onan, the son of Judah. Onan, the son of Judah, who would not love his dead brother and that man's widow, Tamar, by providing an heir, as his father told him to and as the custom was at the time. The custom was that the younger brother would go in if a widow was left by an older brother and give her an heir who would carry on the name and the heritage of the older brother. But Onan... Would not do that. He went into Tamar and then, as the Bible tells us, he spilled his seed on the ground when the time came to act in love, choosing selfishness because he didn't want to split his father's inheritance with his sister-in-law and her progeny. So in his selfishness, he spilled his seed on the ground, choosing selfishness over fruitfulness. He had received love from God, Onan and this figure, this slave in this parable. He has received treasure. He has had the rays of hope strike his head. He has been entrusted with glory and he does nothing with it. He has a form of faith, he has a form of obedience, but he has no love. Ultimately, he has none of the powerful fruit of love that transforms a life and leads many others to God. He's the seed in another of Christ's parables, the parable of the sower. The seed in the parable of the sower that falls on the weed-infested ground where it grows and grows and grows all through its lifespan, but never bears fruit. No great glorious fruit from that life It sits there, it grows, but it's barren. It's like the fig tree that Jesus curses on his way into Jerusalem, his final trip. He went to it for a fig and finding it without a fruit, he said to it, die, you unfaithful tree, die, you unfruitful tree, and it withered and it died that day. And that may strike you as unfair as all because the Bible says it wasn't the season for figs. And you go, wow, this is one harsh master. Look at him. It's not the season for figs and he kills the tree for not having figs on it. This is God speaking to us. This is the reality of what God expects from you. There is, to a man or woman of faith, no excuse for not bearing rich fruit. No matter where you are, who you are, what you are, God expects fruit. God is not pleased with your fastidious rule keeping. God is not impressed by your shiny American reputation with all the right people. God is not happy that you have raised good American citizen children who are popular in school. God is not pleased with your conventionally well kept lawn and membership in the right church. God does not care about all the conventional virtues that you may think make up the Christian life. God expects miracles. God expects figs out of season. God expects you to bear eternal fruit. God wants fruit, he desires fruit, and he will be satisfied with nothing less. And I wanna say to you that love, the fruit of love is messy, love is risky, love is dirty. Love is something that gets you up to your armpits and things that you never dreamt you get up to and you come out smelling beautiful. It may have been that you were up to your arms in filth, but when it's love that took you to that filth and made you participate in it, you come out smelling like a rose. Love doesn't look over at the wounded man lying by the side of the road and say, be be healthy, be well. I'll pray for you. Love doesn't look at the wounded man lying by the side of the road and toss him a few coins and say, hey, I hope this helps. Love goes to that wounded man, picks him up, cleans his wounds, carries him to safety, and pays for his recovery. This is fruit. It's beyond you. Yes, it's beyond you to bear children. Yes, I know, especially in America today. It's beyond you, it's beyond you, it's beyond you, it's beyond you. It's beyond me. God says, you must bear fruit. This is what God looks for in his sons and daughters. He looks for love. Who do you love? Where is your love? Where is the fruit of your love? Where does the world look at you and say, oh man, they love this man loves, this woman loves. You'll know, be known as a Christian, Jesus says, by, by your nice lawn, right? By your clean children, by your prestigious universities that your children go into and the degrees they get in theology there, right? No, you know I'm joking. He says, you'll be known as mine by your love. Who do you love? Are you a man or a woman of love? So I wanna close by addressing this crucial distinction between the third servant and the first two. The two who made a return on the treasure entrusted them. It was a treasure. A talent was about 75 pounds of silver or gold. It could be either. In Roman times, it was almost always silver. It was a talent of silver and and it weighed about, it's the equivalent of 6,000 denarii in value. a denarius, was one day's wage for a competent working man. So if you just simply extrapolate out, it's about 20 years worth of wages for a, you know, a quality working man. Not a rich man, not a poor man. One and a half, two million dollars. That's what this, this poor little you know, third guy gets. He gets a one and a half million, he gets a treasure. The one up from him gets about you know, three to four million and the, the guy with five gets somewhere between seven and a half and ten million dollars. It's not like he's not given anything, he's given something of incredible value in accord with his ability. Now what is the distinction between the three? It's really not that the, the, the last guy doesn't get much, he gets an incredible treasure. Really, the the crucial distinction between the third servant and the first two is fruit. That's all, fruit. God gives the same reward to the second guy as he gives to the first guy, the guy who took two and made it four. Come into my joy. You're going to be in charge of many things. First guy gets the same. Third guy could have gotten that if he'd taken his one and made it two, but he didn't. So there's a difference in fruit. But of course, there's something deeper that drives the unfruitfulness of the third servant. There's something going on that lies behind the lack of fruit in the third guy that's there in the previous two. And this passage makes clear a fundamental difference that may not initially have jumped out at you, but it should. That difference is found in the words spoken by the third servant to the master when it's his turn to come forward and to return what he had been given. And he gives him his one unimproved talent. He says, here you go. You gave it. I'm giving it back. It's, it's all there. All right there. I didn't steal any of it. You understand. I mean, if you look at this spiritually, this guy's saying, I led a clean life. I didn't take your money. I mean, I, you know, I was in church every Sunday. I did the things you you told me to do. And then having seen the rewards of the others and seen how they've produced, he says, okay, okay. And some of you are doing this right now. You're looking at the fruit of others and you're saying, Master, I know you. These other guys, man, they don't know you. (laughs) I know you to be a hard man. Reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. I'm I'm giving it back. You're the kind of guy who would kill a fig tree for not bearing fruit out of season. Ah, you're a hard man, master. And I, I took the wise course. I wasn't too holy. I wasn't too righteous. I just did my thing in accord with what you said. And here you have it back. The master answers and says to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Therefore, you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I'd have received my money back with interest. Even a bare 4% a year would be better than what you did. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. And so at this point, I want to ask you to return to the question I put to you earlier. What is your attitude towards a God who kills a fig tree for not producing fruit in winter? What is your attitude towards a God who will say to some who are seated here this morning and have been seen as rocks of our church, away from me, I didn't know you, you produce no fruit. What is your attitude? You see, as you back up the the chain from love, the fruit, to faith, this man is a worrier. It's obvious in his words, right? He's anxious. He's like Martha, who's worried about many things. She thinks she has the right to be worried about many things, and she lets her worries dominate her life, and this is that kind of man He's worried, worried. I know what you're like, man. You think I'm going to take this money and do something with it? I know you're a hard master and you take what doesn't belong to you and you kill fig trees. Worried, anxious. Let's his life be ruled by his anxieties, his worries. But there's something still deeper about this man. You see the words of this third servant. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. He says, you're unfair, Master. We can't really trust you. Right? That's what he's saying. And this is the truth of unfruitfulness the unfruitful person says it's too costly to obey God by having another child by risking my job by speaking of Jesus I can't do these things I can't trust God that's what you're actually saying I can't trust God he demands things and then he leaves me out to blowing in the wind you know exposed I do it for him and he abandons me and it goes bad now I'm not going to put myself there again no way master I know you you're a hard man reaping where you didn't sow gathering where you scattered no seed so he's deficient in in his works his love for the master for others he's deficient in faith because he won't take a risk Can you imagine leading a Christian life while avoiding risk? Can you imagine a Christian life without faith? Can you imagine where we'd be today if we had not been surrounded and led by people of faith? People who said, don't take a risk. Don't take a risk. Oh, that's risky. We should never, don't take that risk. Deficient in love, deficient in faith, but primarily... And originally, this man lacks hope in God. He doesn't hope in God. His hope is in himself. (laughs) And his ability to play this divine being who is capricious, mercurial, temperamental, and unfair. Okay, I better play my hand well because I'm playing with a master poker player and I'm just going to I'm going to go for a draw, God. You know, I can't win. So I'm playing to get a draw. You know, That's all I can expect from you. I'm not going to go and win. No, I know you, God. I know how you play. You even have cards up your sleeve, God, and I'm not playing with you. Here's your money back. You can have it. His hope is in himself. His God is a God who's an ugly God. He's afraid of God, but not with the fear of a son who fears and yet also loves and knows and trusts and and loves to be around his father. He has no hope in God. So he hopes in himself, his own goodness, his own working, his own deeds. No hope in God. I'm giving it back. He exercises no faith. He has no fruit of love. God, to him, is a scary tyrant and unfair. what is the very first thing that scripture says you must understand if you are to have faith in God and are to bear fruit for God and to end up in heaven the very first thing and without faith Hebrews says it is impossible to please him and then it speaks about where faith comes from for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This third guy doesn't believe that God is going to bring a reward, does he? He has no hope in God. Fruitfulness is ultimately a reflection of where your hope is found. If it's found on earth, your fruits will be earthly. If your hope is in God, your fruits will be heavenly. Do you know God is good? Do you expect blessing from him as a son or a daughter? If so, then you love him, you know him, you risk for him, you have faith, and you bear fruit. The member of the church on earth who does not enter heaven, who proves not to be a son of God in heaven, does not see God this way. Instead, he sees a tyrant, a temperamental mountebank in heaven who must be played just right to make it through. No faith, no love, no hope. So where is your fruit and are you bound for heaven? Where is the fruit of repentance? What have you repented of in the last week? To God first thing John said to people is bear fruit in keeping with repentance repent where are you bearing fruits through your repentance what have you repented of what sins have you cast out of your life by the gift of repentance where is the fruit of your body your marriage your sweat where is there fruit fruit of love Fruit that expresses your love, the fruit of your body. Where is the fruit of your witness? Who have you led to the Lord? I'm not saying you're responsible, but in whose life have you played a significant role in speaking of God such that they have been prodded towards heaven and have come into the kingdom of God? Have you ever done this with anyone? Where is the fruit of your messy love for others that gets your hands dirty, That immerses you in the muck and yet leaves you so beautifully clean when you come out of it. Because you've been engaged in the work of love. This man says, the one who received the one talent came up and said to the the master, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't hope in him. He doesn't know him. Do you know God? Or is that the extent of your knowledge? i a hard man. I'd better keep in with him or it's going to be even worse for me. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Yeah, this hard master, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You hard man, you, who sent your only begotten son. You hard man. You're such a hard man. This God who so loved the world that he sent his son. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. What a hard God, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. In fact, God credits you with the things that his son did. It's the reverse of this accusation. Reaping where you didn't sow? No, you reap good where you didn't sow it through the son of God who died for you. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so the guy says, I was afraid. And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful and convicting. And I pray, Father, that I may be found true, that we may be found true, that every one of us, Father, may be welcomed into the joy of our master in eternity. Forgive us our harsh thoughts against you. Forgive us for thinking that we can judge you. Forgive us for looking down on the gift of Jesus and demanding other things. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray. Give us the fruit of repentance. Give us the fruit of love. Make our lives a testimony to your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.